Hi, this is John Lobel. You can hear my show Visionaries at 10 a.m. on Mondays on PRN. And guess what? PRN now has its own app. So you've always been able to listen to our shows by going to your web browser and putting in prn.fm, and then you can listen to the current show that's on air. But you can now download onto your smartphone, Android, and iPhone our PRN browser. Search for it in your app store, and you can listen live to whatever's on at the moment. So download now our prn.fm app. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at 10 a.m. on Mondays. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Could be any time you're part of the world. You can find us at prn.fm. If you go to the PRN website, you can find other ways to get to us. You can dial in, get us on your phone, get us on iTunes, all that kind of stuff. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N as a Nancy, dot com. And uh, what to talk about today? And what I want to talk about is um, my book list. <laughs> I'm going to go through the books I'm currently reading or listening to. So if you want to call in with uh, your current books you are reading, want to read, recommend, uh, you can call in at our phones that are working again, 888-874-4888. Anyway, only call in if you're listening live uh, today. <laughs> um so, I, I, I'm always interested in, you know, well, first of all, I hardly read anymore. <clears throat> I do a lot of what I do in bed uh, since the—it's interesting. Ten years ago, your laptop wasn't powerful enough to be your main machine. So I would have a—I had a laptop, you know, so that I could— maybe do some work if I was sitting waiting for an appointment or something and I could bring with me when I travel just to check email. We don't need that anymore. You can do all that on our phone. But I needed a room I needed a computer which needed a room. You know, it was this big rig sitting under the desk and I got a nice twenty three inch screen uh I'm embarrassed to say I spent $3,500 for that screen. It was when the, uh, um, it was Max Cinema screen or something like that. It was the, the state of the art of the screen of its day. And now, <clears throat> of course, you can get that screen better than that for uh, 150 bucks. But anyway, uh, now that I can uh, use a laptop, that room has other other uses, and I can sit on a living room sofa or sit in bed and 
write books and do everything you one used to do at a desktop. I don't have a desktop anymore. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm sitting in bed, and do I want to read a book or do I want to watch a rerun, rerun of Big Bang Theory? <laughs> it's pretty hard to read a book. So, uh, but I'm deep into audiobooks. I think I've bought over 200 audiobooks from Audible. And I used to listen on tape. I literally threw away my tapes, uh, hundreds of sets, you know, from six to 12 tapes from one book. And <clears throat> I just, you know, you know, I could dig up a cassette player and pop the tape in and plug in the earphones and put it on my belt. I used to I used to travel with on my belt a tape player and a fanny pack for you know four or five tapes. And two for, you know, each of two or three books I was listening to. So, you know, when listening to a book sometimes it just gets tedious. And I want to switch to another book. So my phone, of course, that's easy. <laughs> I've got about, I don't know, 50, um, 50 of them on my phone. And so anyway, I switch over to digital, get all my books from audiobooks from audible.com, which is an Amazon company. And they've gotten a monopoly on audiobooks. That company's out to control the world. There's <laughs> a big race. Who's going to do it, Google or Amazon? And Amazon continues to remain ahead in every way. Um, but anyway, so I get an account on Audible, and then you can get, I think it's 12 books, or 10 or 12 books for $150 or something. So you're paying $15 a book instead of the 22 that they usually are <clears throat> if you buy them just individually. So, you know, whenever I can afford it, I'll grab another 10 books and uh, download them. And then it's interesting. I, uh, I've been a member of iTunes since it began. And I would download my favorite music and then I'd plug in my iPod when we used to use those. I kept using an iPod for a long time. Uh, I just found the phone too bulky to deal with. Now I only use the phone. Um, and, you know, very occasionally, if I'm going to be on an airplane, I'll load up some stuff on an iPod just uh, not to uh, stress out the battery on my phone. But now many airplanes have a charger under the seat and... I've my phone is old and the battery doesn't last that long. So they owe me a new one. I don't have to pay anything for it because of how much I kind of program I got. But I just carry around a spare battery and when my phone runs down, I plug it in, charge it right up. So, you know, with a spare battery I don't really need the um uh iPod capacity. But anyway, uh then I discovered on iTunes, I couldn't download the music anymore. And it would say, I go to iTunes on my phone, and it says, you already have this in the cloud. Well, what's that? <laughs> so it turns out, uh, 
it, I don't know, it, it, my, all the music I've bought is in the cloud, and I can access it on my phone. I can listen to it from the cloud. So then <laughs> I, uh, I said, what the hell? I, you know, I, I teach courses in, in technology, impact the technology, so I want to keep up on certain things. So then Apple tells me I can get a streaming subscription for up to four or five family members on iTunes for fourteen ninety nine a month. So I got that. And then I discover what that means. I haven't gotten the rest of my family hooked up yet. But I discover what that means is I can get any song ever if it's on iTunes, which I guess most are. So, you know, say I'm, I'm into uh, Jimmy Yancey's blues or Cripple Clarence Lofton's blues. I just, you know, put in Yancey, and there they all are. I can listen to anything. Uh, you know, I want to listen to something by Beethoven. Um, we were listening to, my wife and I were listening to Debbie Reynolds' autobiography on audiobook. And she's talking about her disastrous uh, brief marriage to Eddie Fisher, who, if you're old enough to remember <laughs> in the tabloids, uh, in the scandal sheets, Eddie ran off with um, with Elizabeth Taylor, leaving Debbie Reynolds, America's sweetheart, in the lurch. Well, uh, my wife is, you know, is a singer, voice teacher, and she says, you know, what 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 did uh, Eddie Fisher sound like? I never bought anything by Eddie Fisher, but. Just hop onto iTunes, and since I have this subscription, I can get anything, everything. Uh, there's all of Eddie Fisher's music. So anyway, um, it's sort of not doing that with my books. So I'll buy a book, and I used to buy the book. Then I download the book to my laptop. Then I would um, plug in my phone to my laptop and drag the book onto my laptop. And I keep changing how iTunes works. So every time I go to do that, it works differently, which is a headache since I'm not that techie. I uh, remember when I got my first iPod, I I having trouble with it. And so <laughs> I come into class, uh, and I hand it to a student in the front row, and I said, how do I work this thing? He says, well, first you have to turn turn off the lock switch. <laughs> so you can't do anything if it's locked. So anyway, suddenly I discover that all my, uh, all my, you don't do that anymore. What you do is you down, you buy a book and then right there, on iTunes, it says, I'm sorry, on uh, Audible, it says, do you want to load this onto your phone? So I click yes. It says, it's now on your phone. <laughs> it's not really on my phone, uh, fortunately, because that would start taking up space. But it's available on my phone. Then on my phone, it, there's the book, and I tap download, and within 20 seconds, I can start playing takes about two minutes to download the whole book, but you can start playing it uh, 
after about 20 seconds. So anyway, that's how I read books today. And interestingly, I'm a big McLuhan fan. And if you want to know more about Marshall McLuhan, I did a couple of shows on McLuhan on uh, on Visionaries here. <clears throat> so go, but go to the archive and listen to them, and it's sort of a really good, um, what should we say, uh, outline of how to approach McLuhan. His important book is Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. But <clears throat> that's a lot to read. And he did a book, one of those books that's pictures and about three lines of text on each page. And all the key ideas are there in this very easy to uh, skip through, read picture book. It's called The Medium is the Massage. So he's famous for the quote, The Medium is the Message. But during the production of that book, there was a typo. It came out massage. And they all decided, hey, let's leave that. So it's the medium is the massage. And you can get these books, you know, reasonably on Amazon and used um, quite cheap. And they, um, one of the, the, McLuhan talks about the medium is the message means that apart from the content, it's the medium itself. So people in the 50s, late 50s, were saying, television's terrible. It could have been a great tool for education, but instead it uh, rots children's minds with Saturday cartoon shows and, you know, dumb sitcoms and westerns. So McLuhan said, That's, you're missing the point. It's the fact that we're watching television. doesn't matter what's on it. That's what is the important thing because it's rewiring our brain, making us into a totally new creature. The fact that uh, you watch television uh, in those days, television was black and white and very low resolution. You went up close to the screen and it was just fuzz. And <clears throat> so that was an important thing, how your mind was taking this fuzz and making it into something. And that parts of your brain that were exercised to do that were different from the parts of the brain that were exercised to read a line, a linear type. So the whole mental process of watching television, you're listening, you're watching this fuzzy image, you're filling in the information because it's so low resolution. And when color television came along, McLuhan said, color television isn't black and white with color. Color television is a totally new medium that's affecting how our brain is organized in a totally new way. Uh, and, and, of course, today's high resolution um, uh, 1280p, but you know, 4K is available, and it's not time maybe to spring for it yet because most of what's coming through our box is not 4K yet, but it will be soon. And it's totally different, affecting our minds in a totally different way. We watch it in a different way. And then the fact that some huge percent, I don't know, 
70% of all Americans watched I Love Lucy on whatever night that was. I didn't watch it. Uh, <clears throat> I watched the reruns. but uh, And then the next day, around the proverbial water cooler, everybody had seen the same thing that uh, night before and could talk about it. And the same thing with uh, there were three rock and roll stations in New York, and one of them was dominant, and something like 55% of all people who had the radio on had it on that station. And you could have that, you know, Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue on one of those little 45 RPM records, but listening to that 45 p.m. RPM record, which you were doing alone, was totally different than hearing it on the radio or car radio because you even unconsciously knew that millions of other people were listening to it at the same time. McLuhan <laughs> coined the term global village. It was a tribal activity. It put us into this global village. We unconsciously knew that we were doing this in participation with all these other people. So anyway, McLuhan's point was the way you encounter the medium through which you encounter the material is very important. Uh, so, okay, listening to books as opposed to reading them. Um, so the first thing we're tempted to say, I as a semi-literate person, <laughs> uh, we didn't get a television until I was in junior high. And my parents didn't tell me this, but she said, we're not getting a TV until he reads a book on his own. <laughs> and I discovered, I don't know whether it was which came first, Tarzan or Sherlock Holmes. But I discovered Tarzan, and there are 22 Tarzan books. Only 11 of them were in print. And those were the days when you, um, you know, you, there was no uh, Abe books or Amazon used books so that if it wasn't in print, you couldn't get it. Uh, we were in, uh, maybe you could get it in a used bookstore in New York, but there weren't any used bookstores on Long Island where I lived. So I went through all 11. And I've got one right now, a Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, uh, on my phone. And, uh, you know, I'm listening to it, but I really can't get into it the way I did when I was a kid. I can I can read or listen to Sherlock Holmes, uh, but Tarzan, you know, you know, you got to be an adolescent, I think, to get into that. But anyway, <clears throat> the um, difference between reading and listening. So I'm going to say something McLuhan wouldn't improve of, and that is reading's better. Now, uh, I can retain better when I read. There, there, But also it's different, and that would be McLuhan's point. And so the Audible book is going to the, you know, through the auditory nerves into the audible centers of the brain. And the when you read, it's going to the visual centers of the brain. Totally different. Well, okay, so 
What's the difference? There are books that I've read in you know in college, and I've got, I pay I'm embarrassed to say five hundred a month for my mini storage full of books, and that's after giving three thousand of them to the uh, my school's library and hundreds of others I've sold at Strand. But anyway, um, there'll be a book I've read. And I'll remember it was in the left-hand side in the upper quarter of the page. That's where I saw that. I don't remember the page, but maybe it was sort of halfway through the book. I'll remember that from something I read, you know, 50 years ago. Um, In Audible books, there'll be uh, an idea, something about, oh, you know— something on the Internet or something something going on with the Internet, something about how Facebook was founded. And, you know, I think that's on one of probably one of four or five different books I've listened to. But I have no idea which one and where in the audio book it was. Um, so that's a big problem with with audible books for me. Maybe it's different for other people. So the way we observe, observe, I mean absorb an audio book is totally different from the way we absorb a book we're reading. So that's a common. Anyway, what I was going to do today is go through some of the books that I've been reading or listening to. And what I did last night is I went to my Audible account. I printed out about... 30 pages. (laughs) How far back does that take me? Uh, Hang on. Um, Goes back to 2014. Well, I think my account goes back to like 2009. So there are lots more. But here are some of the recent ones. And I want to run through them. And see if that um, any of them might you might be interested in, and if anybody wants to call in with their list book list, uh, that'd be great. Eight 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 seven four four eight eight eight. So first on my book, uh, first book, first audio book on my list, the Know It Alls. The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball by Noam Cohen. Now, uh, I belong to a seminar group, and Cohen gave a talk there. So I've just started this book and uh, haven't gotten too far. But I'll talk, um, talk a little bit about it because I got an idea what it's about. And it's about, uh, you know, the... Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, and not so much Apple. He doesn't talk that much about Apple, but about how, uh, you know, what role they played in our recent presidential election and how the companies maybe control and influence what's on them and how it reaches us. And even if... They don't, um, they don't, even if they're really honest about what I see on my Facebook 
page. What's their algorithm that determines what I see? How does that affect what I, what I know and think about? Well, of course, we're all interested in that, and that's a big issue. And, you know, some people are saying, A, it's important, and B, therefore, the government should control it. And uh, <laughs> it's like when colleagues of mine say that, you know, my response is, and should the government also control what books I buy uh, and how many books I'm allowed to buy? So anyway, he's got, uh, pardon me, a very nasty, snarky taste take on this because he it contra- it, it's not supportive of his politics. And he thinks, uh, you know, his politics should control and not the what he calls libertarian uh, politics of these Silicon Valley people. I don't know that I'd call a lot of them libertarian, but he does. And in addition, he feels that the wealth that they're accumulating, you know, the the rich people like Bezos, um, Zuckerberg, uh, Larry Page and um, um, what's his name, uh, major owners of Google, that there's something wrong with the wealth they have. And then when, and there's something wrong about this world in which you can start a company and get rich. You know, it's okay that General Electric or General Motors has great uh, value, but Facebook shouldn't because it's a flimsy idea and it's, you know, and it's, its wealth was accumulated in such a short period of time, which is already being put in the shade by the wealth accumulated by Bitcoin investors. And they're not doing anything of social value. But anyway, we'll talk about Bitcoin in another show. But... Uh, then So during the seminar I was at with uh, Noam Cohen, I said, well, what about people like Peter Diamandis and their company, um, their sort of uh, university, if you want to call that, um, the Singularity University, where Peter Diamandis likes to say, if you want to make a billion dollars, come up with an idea that will help a billion people. And we think of things like uh, Dean Kamen's slingshot, which is this little box the size of a dorm refrigerator that can purify water out of anything. Put in raw sewage, get out pure water at two cents a liter. And it hasn't, you know, hasn't panned out. We haven't been hearing a lot about it recently, but you know, that's an idea he pursued. Coca-Cola worked on it for a while. And he just dismissed that because it doesn't fit his politics. Uh, you know, getting a billion people out of poverty has happened in the past um, in the past 10 years, uh, mostly in China. The that, you know, it wasn't done through his kind of politics, so he won't even talk about it. Dismiss my question. Anyway, that's my take on the book. I'm going to try to get through it. It's called The Know-It-Alls. And 
it's one of several books, you know, that now that we've identified Google, Facebook, Amazon, are these new monsters that affect every aspect of our lives. This is one of the books about that. Next book on my list, Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality by Jaron Lanier. So if you've been a techie follower for some decades, as I've had, uh, you'll know about Jaron Lanier. He's a pioneer of virtual reality and, you know, the idea of goggles and gloves. Goggles and gloves and you're walking on Mars. And this has been around for a long time. It was big in the 1980s. In the 1980s, I went to a loft hearing about it somewhere. And there was a, a basically a boxing ring in the loft. And you got in there and put on goggles and held a gun. And all of a sudden, let's say five people got in there. You could see those five people in your goggles, and they all look like Power Rangers, <laughs> you know, with um, spandex outfits and Power Ranger helmets and and insect eye goggles, and <clears throat> you'd see them in your goggles, and you could shoot them, and with your handheld ray gun, and so, and I don't know. I mean, that was so advanced for its time, and then virtual reality sort of uh, faded away, and today it's back again. Will it take off big? Who knows. But there's uh, big in, uh, investments in it. All the major players are invested. Apple's, uh, you know, next generation iPhones are going to be able to do the whole thing. You won't have to buy $600 goggles. You just get this uh, little, you can get them now. The New York Times distributes one made out of cardboard, and you slide your uh smartphone into it, and you're walking around in virtual reality. Not as good as the goggles, but, uh, you know, it's there. And so if you want to know what this is about, go to Best Buy and uh, and tell them you want to try the goggles. Imply you want to buy something, and they'll probably be more uh, receptive. Or if you're in Manhattan, you can go to the Microsoft Store on 5th Avenue, 53rd Street, go to the third floor, and they have the whole thing there. So uh, Jaron Lanier is a pioneer in all this, and he writes about it in his book. shouldn't be too critical because I've just started it. Hopefully he gets uh, fully up to today and what's coming. But the first part of the book is about his growing up. So how much do I want to read about Jaron Lanier's growing up? But anyway, he's a key figure, and it does take you through the history that leads to where we are today. So you may want to, uh, you may want to try that one out. Um, so next book is Darwin's Dangerous Idea. I'm slow on this book. is <laughs> more than 10 years old, but... I'm slow to get caught up. This is uh, by Daniel C. Dennett, Evolution and the Meaning of Life. So our two big evolutionary uh, 
proponents and, shall we say, um, proselytes and also as part of that, um, atheists, are Dennett and who's the guy who did um, The Selfish Gene? It'll come to me. I have it in here somewhere. And I just read that or listened to it recently. I mean, that's a book from uh, more than 20 years ago. And, uh, but if you get it, uh, look at it today. It's updated and it brings us up to date with uh, the reactions to it, etc. And selfish gene doesn't mean, what selfish gene means is not we are genetically programmed to be selfish. What it means is that the gene is the unit of evolution. In other words, uh, I'll use a phrase that we don't like, survival of the fittest, um, or natural selection. Well, what gets, there we go, Richard Dawkins wrote The Selfish Gene. So Dennett and Dawkins are kind of a duo in this material. And <clears throat> Richard Dawkins' point in The Selfish Gene is that, okay, um, natural selection selects what's going to survive. It's almost a truism. There's um, a creature, a lion, gives birth to a litter of six pups. On average, uh, and let's say does that uh, five times over her lifetime, so there's 30 pups she gives birth to. Well, depending upon the math, uh, two are going to survive and 28 are not. Otherwise, the lion population would be, um, you know, growing exponentially. So... The two that survive are the ones that pass on their genes. End of story. The 30, 28 that don't survive don't pass on their genes. And uh, so we that's a process. That's Darwin's natural selection. Now, where does that natural selection take place? Uh, what's being selected for? Is it an individual that's better suited to survive? Is it the population, one group of lions is better at surviving, at hunting or whatever, maybe because they're more cooperative when they're hunting wildebeest or whatever, and another pride of lions is less adept. And so, you know, is it the population that's selected for? Is it the individual that's selected for? And uh, Richard Dawkins shows that it's the gene that's selected for. And what that means. And, ha and then the individual is a thing that carries the gene or genes. So anyway, um, if you take Darwinian evolution, natural selection, seriously, what are the philosophical implications? That's what um, uh, Dennett's book is about. And... I'm, it's a long book, 27 hours and four minutes, <laughs> and I'm about three or four hours into the book, so I'll talk more about that when I finish it. Uh, next book on my list, these are the orders that I've bought them in, but not necessarily the orders I'm listening. And the next book is a book called The Quantum Labyrinth, 
How Richard Feynman and John Wheeler Revolutionized Time and Reality. Now, um, so we're in this era of... Um, uh, so I think I'll take a break. And um, uh, if you're listening online, go uh, open up... Um, Quantum Labyrinth on Amazon, and we'll be back in a minute. And so let's just take a break and have a few promos, and we'll be back shortly. Do you want to know the latest news or upcoming events? Follow us at Twitter at PRN underscore radio, or click the Twitter icon on our homepage. You can also friend us on Facebook. Just search Progressive Radio Network. Always new and up to date. The Progressive Radio Network, your home for thoughtful and informative information. Greetings, this is Ellen Kamai, the natural nurse co-host of The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z. Dr. Eugene Samperone and I are deeply involved with indigenous cultures and combine traditional knowledge with the latest research in natural health care. Join us each week on prn.fm from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time every Tuesday or anytime on the archives. Each week, we'll bring you authors, professors, researchers, and activists who are committed to bringing you the latest information which you can use to ensure maximum wellness for yourself, your cells, and your family. Tune in to PRN.FM every Tuesday, 10 to 11, Eastern Standard Time, or listen to the archive at 1701. 719-0884. This is Ellen Kamai, the natural nurse, hoping that you stay healthy. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. South of the border. I'm Johnny Mueller, host of the Expat Files, living in Latin America. Heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Sunday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a show where you'll learn how to work, play, do business, or retire and live the life of Riley. Yes, an amazing number of first world people like you are jumping off the stateside treadmill and voting with their feet. And surprise, surprise, they're finding there really is an American dream. But it's not in Seattle, Milwaukee, or Cleveland anymore. It's down here in Latin America. So be sure to tune into the Expat Files to find out how you can live the good life on a measly social security check. PRN, the Progressive Radio Network, your home for progressive thinkers. This is Rob Simons. Join me Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on my new show called Moving Forward. This show will cover my thoughts about the world and what to do moving forward. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. And you'll find us on prn.fm every 
Monday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and you have to figure out what time that is in your part of the world. And our back shows are on visionaries.podbean.com. So last night I printed out about 40 pages of my uh, my uh, Audible account where I get my audio books. I used to call it books on tape, right? But <laughs> tape? What's tape? <laughs> oh, one of these days maybe I'll bring a dial telephone in to show my students. <laughs> when I was a little kid, we lived in... Um, Sort of farm country outside of Pennsylvania. My father was in the government and the Security Exchange Commission because of World War II had moved from Washington to Philadelphia. So we were out in the suburbs or farm country. And there was no dial on the phone. You just picked it up and a live operator said, number please. <laughs> so I'm this little kid, you know, like, uh, I don't know, five or six. And so I watched my mother doing that. So I pick up the phone, and the operator says, number, please. I said, uh, number, please. Uh, whom do you want to speak to? Uh, Billy. <laughs> At which point, my mother came into the room, saw what was going on, took the phone, and apologized to the operator. Anyway, uh, so that was even, you know— <laughs> so I, I dial phones existed, but they didn't have them where, where I was growing up. So I'm going to get through, you know, probably uh, four page, two pages of this. So maybe we'll do a couple more shows going through these books, and hopefully you'll find it useful in what you might want to pursue. So the Quantum Labyrinth, How Richard Feynman and John Wheeler Revolutionized Time and Reality. And it's a guy named Paul Halpern, but <clears throat> is the writer. I don't think too much of the writing. It's very, oh, geez, how, what, what? It's like he's walking you through this material. You know, he did all this research, put it on the computer equivalent of three by five cards, put them in order, and is telling you, you know, about their lives and their kids and, and et cetera. But I love these kinds of science books. And these are two major figures. So John Archibald Wheeler coined the term black hole, uh, uh, sort of hung out with Einstein. I don't know that they directly worked together and died only a couple of years ago in his 90s and uh, did important work both in quantum theory and relativity. There was a time when relativity had been dropped. No one was doing relativity. And then they discovered... If you want to figure out what's going on uh, in a collapsing, you know, when you collapse into a black hole, uh, you can't do that. You need both quantum theory and relativity. And these are two major figures in both. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and Wheeler is noted for mentoring some major figures, one of being Feynman. And Feynman's everybody's favorite physicist. You find him mentioned a lot in Big Bang Theory. So anyway, uh, I'm only about a quarter into that, but I love that kind of book. And then a book you've probably been hearing about, uh, Donna Brazile's Hacks, 
the inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House. So Donna Brazil is this um, political operative who likes to say she's been doing politics for more than 50 years. She started at the age of nine uh, organizing to get elected a candidate who said he would get a playground in her neighborhood. So she ran Albert Gore's uh, campaign, and with the, let's see, blow-up of scandals surrounding Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was head of the DNC, Democratic National Committee, Schultz had to resign, and uh, Donna Brazil came in. On, uh, it was understood it would just be for the duration of the election to run the DNC. And the DNC, Democratic National Committee, is totally different from Hillary's campaign committee. And the two were didn't get along that well. And this book is the... Two, two key things. One is the inside dope on the conflicts between the two groups. And the other is about the Russian hacking of DNC computers. And, you know, there are some right-wing commentators who say, ah, you know, maybe it was an inside job. Somebody went in with a, with a uh, flash drive, grabbed the emails, and then the headache for the Democrats was that WikiLeaks released the emails in batches in such a way as to produce maximum embarrassment for the Hillary campaign. <clears throat> so, um, who did it? Well, Donna Brazil describes stuff that other people haven't been talking about. And the people who interview her, they want to know about the scandal. They don't want to know about this hacking, which is a mind-blowing story. She described she and a couple of others were brought in for an FBI briefing. And I'll exaggerate just a little bit. Uh, they have to, you know, like those movies you see where they go through double doors and they get x-rayed, and then they have to surrender their cell phones, and they go through more double doors, and then they have to sign releases. And she said, you know, I pulled out my—I had worked in the State Department. I pulled out my national security card. She says, that national security isn't high enough for the briefing you're going to get. You have to get a temporary higher national security. Then they're told, if you repeat anything from this meeting, you go straight to Guantanamo. <laughs> no, no, no lawyer, no stopping for a trial. You just go straight to Guantanamo. And then she said, the stuff I heard in this briefing was so scary. And it was about hacking. I mean, you can also get briefings about, you know, at what point are people going to bring in an atomic bomb on a suitcase or a dirty bomb? And dirty bombs easy to make. It's just a couple of sticks of dynamite and some plutonium. You put it in a suitcase and walk in. So this goes on all the time. And New York Times did a big article about this some years back about the people who, uh, you know, uh, do the counter to this kind of stuff. But anyway, <laughs> the stuff she heard was so scary uh, about what's going on. And everything's getting hacked. Every company, every government agency, you know, every electrical grid. So 
coming up to the election, right, you know, the last uh, two weeks, the hackers were totally overwhelming their tech people. And being that a lot of uh, Silicon Valley, top Silicon Valley people are good Democrats, a bunch of the top security Silicon Valley um, techies flew in. They got a you know an empty townhouse that they rented, slept in sleeping bags. Uh, Twenty of them worked on uh, around the clock shifts in hand to hand online online combat, defending the the DNC servers against these hackers. So what a story! And there, I've read several books on hackers. There are some famous books. That I'll mention. Maybe they're going to be in my list eventually. This is this, you know, blow by blow description of the hacking stuff. And Donna Brazil got to be pretty f- proficient in understanding and describing what was going on. It's just mind blowing, and nobody's covered it. So I strongly recommend that book. Um, Machine platform crowd harnessing our digital future. Now. Pardon me while I uh, mangle the author's name. Andrew McPhee, that's easy. And Eric Brynjolfsson. Anyway, Machine Platform Crowd. And actually, I'm working on a book on a similar subject right now. And we've, you know, we're in the midst of technological... Let's say our digital revolution has been going on since, when do you want to date it? The uh, first uh, Apple II. Uh, It's not the first home computer, but it's the first big successful one. And that's 1978. And so that's when it really starts to get going, and we're still in the uh, unfolding of that revolution in the stuff we're walking around. Uh, you know, we're all carrying a Cray-1 supercomputer in, in our pocket, in our cell phone. Well, okay, so that's continuing. What's the story? And the story is, it really is changing. Something really a lot bigger is on the verge of happening. Machine, you know, this robot thing. Um is it on the verge of really wiping out a lot of jobs? And what's that going to mean? Uh, hamburger flipping. Do you really need a person to do that? And even already, um, there's uh, the McDonald's closest to me. We don't admit that. Don't tell anybody I mentioned McDonald's. I'm not supposed to have ever been in one on this station, right? But... Uh, the McDonald's close to me. You go up to the counter like you always did. But two blocks away, three blocks away, there's one where you come in and there's a kiosk. And I thought, oh, okay, it's to show the menu. No. You go in that kiosk and touch, 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 touch. You make your order. And it gives you a number or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I've never, I don't buy stuff at McDonald's. So, but I, you know, going to try, how's that thing work? And then they give you a number and in uh, what you then go to um, a table and you put that number down and they bring it to you or you go up to the counter and they say, 
number 38, and you pick up your stuff. Uh, so now we're talking about that person at the cash register who, to whom you gave your, I'll have a, you know, I'll have a Mac meal, Big Mac meal with a diet Coke or whatever. That person's gone. It's now a kiosk. So robots don't have to be, you know, like Robbie in uh, Forbidden Planet. Uh, they're going to be in there all kinds of ways, like self-driving cars. <laughs> so there's now thousands of them on the road in some cities. Uber just ordered 24,000 self-driving cars from uh, from Volvo platform. Uh, a plat- you know, Facebook is a platform. Google is a platform. And then they discover they can add all this other stuff. Once you have the platform, um, you know, like my—I don't—I have a faculty mailbox. I go there maybe twice a year because <laughs> they email me uh, if, you know, when the faculty meeting is. I don't have to go to my mailbox to get the notice. But— My students now are starting to not use email. They exchange information on Facebook. How do you do that? I don't know. (laughs) So, you know, suddenly landlines are disappearing. Okay, we all understand that. None of my students has a landline. I still pay, I don't know, $80 a month. Why am I doing that for this stupid landline? All I do is get these junk calls. I get about three a day. Uh, I only get one a day on my cell phone, so I should get rid of my landline. But uh, so Facebook is a platform from which all this other stuff gets starts to get done. You know, the cloud provides platform for the business software the companies use. So how does that change everything? And then crowd. Um, if a company wants... Uh, the book has a story about General Motors, I'm sorry, General Electric, had a, I don't know, a coffee-making machine or something like that. And they crowdsourced the design. Uh, what does that mean? How are they doing that? What's the—I'm uh, in the middle of a project right now where I'm arguing with my colleagues that we should do that. We need a, a very specific techie thing. I can't go into what it is. But, you know, there are only a handful of— engineers in the country who could probably, you know, design this. We're trying to hunt them down and get their input and see if any of them want to take on the task. Alternatively, there's a website where you just post, this is what we need done. And anybody who comes up with a, the ideal solution gets, uh, pick a number, $10,000, uh, rather than paying 50000 for somebody to maybe be able to do it or not. Uh, so lots of uh, lots of things are getting done that way. So what does it mean when you start having these self-driving cars and, you know, maybe the self-driving car software also keeps your calendar? <laughs> so you get in your car and it knows everybody else's calendar. So not only does it know where the traffic is, so when I drive in the city, I use I use uh, Google Maps, and <laughs> this is after a couple of bad experiences with Apple Maps when they first came out. 
sending me all over the place. Uh, they're probably better now. But the map, you know, the more people use it, the better it gets. So once, which is another point this book makes, that Google bought this company, what's it called? Uh, there's a software you use to know not only, you know, what route should you take to get from here to there, but which one is better because of the traffic. And so this company was doing, and what it does is it tracks everybody's phone who's a member. And if the phones are on one road are moving slowly, and on the other road they're moving fast, then we know that which road is better. So that becomes a platform. Uh, so anyway, I, the book began as one more book listing all the new developments, and then it got really good. And it's got a very good under, uh, explanation of what Bitcoin is and uh, uh, blockchain. So blockchain is the platform on which Bitcoin runs, and it's going to change everything. How? That's why you read this book. Uh, I think we got time for one more. And sure enough, I got through one and a half pages. Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Max Tegmark. Well, it's about artificial intelligence. So where does that stand now? And the term was coined in the 60s and, uh, you know, back in... Um, the 30s when the pioneers of computer science like Turing developed his Turing machine, which is a notion of the processes uh, whereby a computer works. And then will that be turnable into, uh, you know, okay, you can say two plus two and hit equals and the computer tells you four or, you know, something a lot more complicated, but it's still calculation. Uh, but at what point does it have AIG, artificial general intelligence? So, yes, you know, we computers can do all kinds of stuff like uh, can look at um, can look at scans, look at your um, um pap smear or breast scan or something like that and it's white in there. Uh, is that just uh, some density or is there something to worry about? Computers can do that better than doctors. So uh, uh, where do we stand now and what's coming? This is the best book that uh, provides that with us. So listen, we're going to wrap up. I got through one, two, three, hang on, four, five, six, seven books out of my hundred here. So uh, <laughs> maybe plenty, uh, plenty more material for future shows. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. And you can find our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week.
Activist Radio on the Progressive Radio Network is a weekly program for 